We are starting, though, with a business in Vancouver that has shut its doors temporarily. It's unclear for how long, but this is all linked to the construction on the Broadway corridor for the new subway. Alan Ingram is joining us now, the owner of Home on the Range Organics. Alan, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, and good afternoon. Good afternoon to you as well. So tell us a bit about where your business is located and what's happened. Yeah, so we're at 235 East Broadway, which is uh, in between Main Street and Kingsway uh, on the north side of the street. And uh, we uh, basically are closed as of uh, Friday, 3 p.m., which was last Friday. And closed, and how come? So uh, we were instructed uh, by our landlord that uh, a survey that was done um, post uh, core drilling, which is happening right outside uh, our storefront, uh, to see if there was any damage to the facade or structural damage to the building, which might affect public safety. So from a public safety perspective, uh, the surveyor uh, concluded that there, there was some damage to the building. And so we were asked to close uh, until such time as there was further action either from the city or remediation work was completed, which would allow us to reopen. And do you have any idea at this point about that work being done or when you might be able to reopen? Um, I had a conversation with my landlord yesterday, and he has instructed the second engineer to come take a look and uh, to assess, uh, obviously, just to confirm the the first inspection and and whether or not that work uh, uh, is essential and how how long it's going to take and hopefully... You know, we're able to get some answers uh, once that comes back to us. And at the moment, we have no idea when we're going to be able to reopen. And what does that do to your business, which I can imagine anybody that's been along the corridor where the construction is taking place knows that even though the businesses are open, it's very difficult to navigate as a pedestrian or as a motorist. Uh, what does this do to your business that, that I'm, I'm, I'm sure was already kind of having to, to work around what has been a very active construction site? Well, yes, Jill, absolutely. I mean, uh, just to backtrack for a moment, over the last 24 months since the project started, this has affected the sales of my business, personally, uh, over $250,000 to the point where I had to remortgage my home in order to support the business and the seven families that I employ that, uh, you know, that are relying on their paychecks, many of whom are paycheck to paycheck, to, uh, you know, to to, to get a living wage to... uh, to keep going here. So, um, yeah, bottom line is this has definitely affected us in a fairly major way from the outset of the construction to to this point and certainly what's happened over the last three or four days. That's, um, that's I mean, good on you for doing that, but that's got to be difficult, remortgaging and doing that just to keep the lights on. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, obviously I'm not the only one. There's, there's uh, many stories that have uh, come out up and down the board corridor that uh, just echo this uh, this sentiment that you know people are struggling and I did a drive by uh, last week from Alma up to where we are um, at Kingsway and there were uh, 70 businesses that were boarded up or for lease and obviously you know, might, might be able to attribute some of that to to COVID and the fallout from the pandemic but additionally 
the transit line will have, will have definitely had some impact on that. So, you know, the, the province who are obviously ultimately responsible for this project, they have designated this as a short-term project and therefore aren't getting any compensation. But, you know, it's, it's fairly easy to look at this project, which is five or six years, uh, and conclude that that isn't a definition of a short-term project. Now, it might be short-term for the businesses that have gone under, uh, during the start of the construction, but uh, in anybody else's mind, it's clear it's a much longer project than that. And you mentioned as well uh, the pandemic, and that, that has crossed my mind as well, looking in that area, in that especially, well, for any of the businesses, but especially those that were shut down for, for any period of time during that. It did seem just as businesses were starting to come back and starting to get back to some sense of normal, this construction was in full swing. And again, keeping you could put all the signs up there you want saying businesses are open. People in, in many scenarios aren't going to be coming. Well, that's 100% correct. I mean, to your point with scaffolding, obviously, uh, with with the borehole drilling happening right outside, uh, we had construction that was put up uh, eight weeks ago now. We were told it was going to be three to four, and, you know, there's another story. But uh, with that fallout, our walk-by traffic has dropped 50% just from that alone, in addition to the other, uh, you know, slowdowns that we've had given, uh, you know, the length of the corridor Broadway. Uh, you mentioned uh, no compensation because the project is defined as a short-term project. But with what's happened now, with your business being told the, the pedestrian walkway out front isn't safe because of what's been going on with the construction and, and the boring machine, uh, should there not be some kind of compensation? Or are you hoping or expecting some kind of compensation for, for that to have taken place? You know, I think uh, in this particular position, you know, I'm coming at at it from the standpoint that there are so many businesses that are affected up and down the Broadway corridor, uh, you know, to single myself out for relief would be, uh, you know, would be selfish. But, uh, you know, you look back to the Camby line and you see all of the businesses that were affected from that, many, many, many businesses that were lost as a result of that. And, you know, this is a cry for help for, for uh, you know, any of those that are still just barely surviving for those on the Broadway corridor that, uh, you know, if they haven't already gone under, that are close to it. And the end of the line is even when this construction is complete, the likelihood is for property development to, to happen at many of those spots for those businesses that were, you know, just barely surviving. Those, uh, given it's going to be rezoned for high rises, are just going to disappear so the city can collect more taxes from from uh, you know the properties and from everybody inside of them. So I don't see that there is you know any solution for the small term, uh, small size businesses here. And really, so I'm trying to be vocal, vocal on everybody's behalf for that reason. And and I would like very much for you know Mike Fleming, the Minister of Transport, to be able to come out and actually address this given that decisions like these are made behind closed doors without, you know, any impact to, to the people making those decisions. But it's, you know, us as small business owners that are feeling, you know, every pinch that, uh, that we have from new taxes coming from every which direction. This, uh, you know, is a singular project that affects so, so many businesses. And so I'm trying to be vocal on everyone's behalf here. Right. And, and I think people will likely appreciate that. Is it, is it the city of Vancouver, though, that came and inspected or, or made the decision that you had to shut down? Or was it the province? So at this point, the inspection that was done actually was a private inspection 
done by the landlord of the building due to concerns that any of the borehole drilling might have impacted the building. We, we're in a heritage B building. It's, it's 1908 construction. You know, this is, this is a very old building, beautiful building. And so, you know, for, for, for the landlord, I think from a public, public safety perspective, he was really looking to make sure that, uh, that this um, borehole drilling was, uh, was going to not impact uh, to, uh, the building of pedestrians. And so, you know, we're following the course uh, directed from the landlord to make sure that we're not putting the public at risk. And, and so, you know, we'll tow that line until we're told, told otherwise. And, you know, if we get another, any other instruction in the meantime, that, you know, obviously we'll, we'll, we'll change tack. But the time being, you know, the families that, that we hire and everybody else uh, in, in the building upstairs, because there is a vintage mall upstairs, all of those guys are affected too. Um, you know, we're in a, sta- a state of limbo. Are other businesses shut down as well? Yeah, so uh, there's actually uh, Mintage Mall, which is upstairs from us. It's a collection of smaller businesses selling vintage clothing, very popular. Um, they're, they're absolutely, uh, they were shut down on, on uh, Friday as well. And I would imagine, too, uh, the, the same as you, kind of struggling already and uh, trying to, to keep as much business as possible. Uh, I know you touched on this, but so at this point, though, uh, do you have any indication on when you might be able to reopen? Do you know, uh, at the moment, we were in this holding pattern, and, you know, obviously I'm waiting for a green light from somebody, whether that comes from uh, my landlord, whether that comes from... Uh, the city, you know, we're just hopeful that we're going to get some resolution soon. But even with that, obviously, the bigger picture is that, uh, you know, the construction project, as it has done through the course of this last two years, um, you know, has taken away the livelihoods for, for many business owners. And, uh, you know, this is just one of those things that aggravated the, the situation. Uh, is there a way people can support your business online or if, if there are people hearing this that want to, are there, is there something or anything uh, people can do uh, as uh, you wait for the doors to reopen and, and for the construction to, to continue and, and eventually finish? Jill, that's uh, well, it's so amazing that you asked. Yes, we have an online website. It is, uh, uh, it's an abbreviation of the first letters of Home on the Range Organics. It's hotro.ca. Uh, people can order. We're actually uh, offering free delivery within the, the, within the local area and a flat fee of $10 if it's further afield in the low mainland, which is half of what we normally do. We are definitely looking for people to step up and support the business. You know, if you believe in, in uh, small business and, and you want them to stick around, then, uh, you know, certainly we would appreciate you uh, coming and ordering from us and, and we can get you some great products, everything that we do locally sourced and actually over 75% of what I carry comes from within 100 miles of my store. So if anybody is, is representing small business, then, you know, I believe it is us. So, uh, you know, anyone wants to step up, we would really appreciate it. All right. Alan, we will leave it there for today, uh, but we will follow up to see when you're able to open the doors again. Thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Jill. I really appreciate the chance to share the story of all these people who have been suffering from uh, from this project. We hope to get some resolution soon.
Well, yesterday we were talking to a Prince George resident stuck in Tucson. Yes, there are worse places to be stuck, but still very frustrating for passengers that were booked on a Flair Airlines flight home only to find that flight was canceled. We know that four of the airplanes owned by Flair were seized due to an ongoing uh, disagreement, you could say, with a lessor. We also did hear from the CEO of the company that one of the flights that was canceled was because of sick crew members. There weren't enough crew members for that flight. Now, many people have rebooked, have found other ways of getting home, but not my next guest. Holly Marshall is still in Tucson with her family, and she joins me now to talk a little bit more about what is happening. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me, Jill. You are one of the many people that uh, were caught by these cancellations by Flair Airlines. Tell me a little bit about your situation and how things unfolded for you. Well, so um, initially we were supposed to be down in Tucson um, from March 3rd to the 10th, so one week stay. And the the flight down was, was fine. There was no issues. Um, on the 10th, we received notification about two hours prior to boarding uh, that our flight was delayed. Um, I assume it was because the crew had gotten in late from a previous flight because we were told it was due to crew rest, uh, that they were uh, needed, needed essentially more sleep to operate the flight safely. So, so we waited about the three hours and um, we were all at the gate. Uh, it was maybe 15 minutes prior to departure and then a announcement came over the loudspeaker uh, saying that the flight was cancelled. So at that point it was just uh, total chaos and um, you know the agent at the desk just kind of she apologized and shrugged and she gave us a, a telephone number to call um, but I mean there was there was quite a few passengers and everybody you know was was just baffled that there was no real directive on the ground as to what to do. We were just all supposed to call this number and the number, um, you know, the whole time was over an hour because they were so inundated with calls. Now um, it was, it was just pure chaos. And, and so what happened at that point? And I should mention as well, because we were talking to a couple of other passengers yesterday and they mentioned this too, that they were, they were two people retired and while it was inconvenient and they weren't pleased with the way they had been treated, they were saying how it could have been much, much worse. You're a family of four. So that's got to make things much more stressful and much more difficult. It was very hard. Uh, my son is, you know, my youngest is three, and um, he sat on the ground at the airport, I want to say for three or four hours, you know. Um, my daughter was in tears. She's due back at school, and she was, she was looking forward to going back. Um, my husband is a first responder. Uh, he was due back at his job the following morning. Um, but there was a girl beside us. I think she was maybe in her you know, early 20s at the most, and she was crying. She said she was going to lose her job for it. And there was just no offering of alternative flights. There was, they put some water and pretzels on the, the counter for us, and um, they sent, they give us the phone number. But uh, everybody who was phoning in, you know, so we were all now at this point gathered around the, the Flair Airlines desk at check-in, and I think everybody was there for several hours. And... Um, People were just trying to figure out how to get home. 
there was no alternative flight offered. We were told the next one was coming on Friday and um, we would be sent hotel vouchers uh, for, for the stay. They, they had assured us Flair would pay for hotel vouchers and meal vouchers and uh, transportation to these hotels. So at the time, that was somewhat comforting um, for those of us who, you know, didn't then hop on a, a flight with Air Canada or WestJet or a different means to get home. But, um, yeah, at, so, so we, my, my husband and myself, we rented a car because uh, we knew we would have to, you know, that would come out of our own pocket. Um, and we received a voucher from Flair for a hotel. Uh, it was about 10 kilometers away. So uh, we, we decided to make our way to the hotel at that point. And have you heard from Flair then as far as then, uh, because I know there were some concerns about people even getting the vouchers and getting the, <laughs> the, the compensation they had been, been promised, but have, have you heard then or been given any more clarification from Flair? I have never heard, I have never heard from Flair, not once. Since this, since this happened. They have never reached out to me personally um, by phone, by email. I have records of my phone calls and my emails to them, and, and it's well over 30 phone calls that I've made in the last few days. Um, on Friday, on that day when we were sent our hotel voucher and people were starting to, you know, after hours at the airport, were starting to, uh, you know, ma- make their arrangements now of what they were going to do for, for either the week ahead or the way home. Um, we got to the hotel I was about, I want to say maybe around 3 p.m. that day. We got to the hotel. My kids were very tired. And I had this email from Flair with a confirmation number, and I went to the desk and uh, to check us in, and I showed her the confirmation number, and she knew nothing about it. Hmm. And I gave her my last name, and I said, okay, well, you know, my last name is Marshall, and we're with Flair Airlines. And again, she knew nothing about it. And the manager came out, and the manager was very gracious. She, uh, she saw how tired we were and how, how upset and stressed, and she, um, she offered us a room to stay in until they sorted it out with Flair. So we went into the room, um, and I think I must have spent the entire night and most of the next morning on the phone with Flair. In the end, uh, to my knowledge, Flair never, like, the, the, the voucher just didn't exist. The hotel never received it. The only reason that we were allowed to stay there was, was by the graciousness of the hotel themselves. Hmm. Um, yes. And so, uh, well, and then the next day, um, that's a whole other story, but they, there, there was just no directive, right? It was checkout time. It was 10 AM and, um, we had heard nothing from Flair. Flair still hadn't paid for that hotel. We didn't have a new hotel to go to. Um, yeah, it was, it was just chaos is, is the only way I can describe it really. And at this point then, so, so when were you supposed to be coming home and what do you know about when you might get home now? So we were supposed to fly home on March 10th. Um, that was cancelled and the next flight we were told was on March 17th. Uh, so this upcoming Friday. Um, and we've just, now we've just started to do, you know, hang on to our receipts and uh, somewhat gotten around ourselves because I just I just don't have any faith in them. They've never reached out to us. They've never checked in with us. Um, on Saturday, after we checked out of the hotel, I called, I emailed, you know, where is a hotel voucher? I've got my two young kids. If, if we hadn't have had the rental car and the financial means to do it ourselves, 
I mean, I don't know what you would do. You would be on the street with two children and you wouldn't hear from them. Um, so, so they just, they didn't, they didn't answer me. Uh, the whole day went by on Saturday and finally at 8 PM after we had already booked a hotel and, you know, we were in for the night at 8 PM, they sent me a hotel voucher. Hmm. So yeah, it's, it's very disappointing. And for the the timing of it too, to be staying for an extra week, and and even if the expenses are covered, like you said, your daughter was looking forward to school. Your husband's a first responder. That's got to be really inconvenient, to to say the least. It's very inconvenient, and not to be offered any alternative flight, um, not to have any communication from them. You know, they had initially told us at the airport when we were on the phone uh, that there would be meal vouchers, there would be transportation to these hotels that they provide, but um, we've received nothing. We have received no no meal voucher, um, you know, the hotel voucher on the first night, well, they didn't even have a record of us. So uh, no transportation voucher. I just don't know how somebody would really do this. And then missing work, missing school, missing other commitments back home. Um without so much as an apology or reassurance or anything really, right? You're just kind of um, on your own, it feels. And and so you'll stay there and then, then come back on the 17th. So will you be following up with Flair or what would you like the airline to do at this point? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, there's, there's um, yeah, I'm, it's, I'm almost speechless about it. Uh, obviously we are expecting compensation I am very concerned that we will be getting compensation just based upon, you know, the other experiences I've heard from from others uh, in this situation prior to us. But um, we are expecting compensation and a very big apology for this disruption. But my faith in them now, just given their lack of care for us stranded here in Tucson, um, you know, speaks volumes. Right. And well, we will continue following up on this as well and seeing what happens next. But Holly, we'll leave it there for today. Thank you so much for joining us. And I really do uh, hope that the rest of your time is uneventful and you get home uh, on the 17th. Yes, thank you. Uh, Us too. (laughs) That's a must. You may have heard this on the news. The BC SPCA is warning the public to be aware of a couple selling what are described as sick and very skinny kittens in Surrey. There have been numerous complaints during the past few months from people who believe they purchased these kittens and cats from the pair. Well, joining us to talk more about this is Eileen Draver, Senior Officer of Protection and Stakeholder Relations with the BC SPCA. Eileen, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for this opportunity to discuss it. Um, Yeah, people need to be very, very careful out there. So how was this actually happening? Okay, so back in January of 2022, we received our first complaint about a male advertising cats and kittens on Kijiji, Craigslist, etc. And he was selling kittens for between $250 and $1,500. And then... It seems since then we've received about 11 complaints from different individuals who have purchased um, cats or kittens. And the cats, perhaps a day or two later, presented with, uh, they were vomiting, they had eye infections, they weren't eating, 
Um, some of them were really, really thin, and some tested po- positive for the feline parvovirus, which is horrific. Um, and unfortunately, um, this male is—we we have identified this male, and I can't discuss the actual investigation, but I can say or plead to people: do not purchase cats or kittens or puppies or dogs from individuals who want to meet with you any parking lot. Um, that should raise a red flag in itself. Any reputable breeder will invite you to their place to have a look at the cats and kittens and see the mom and see the dad. But this is just outrageous. And these animals are suffering. And many, many people have huge hearts. And they will purchase the cat or kitten um, believing that they're rescuing it. And, and, and in fact, what's happening is you're lining these individuals um, pockets, and they will continue to do this. It's, and I know you said you can't talk about the investigation, but is it then as far as where are they getting the cats? And that do you think that the people these are they're breeding the cats to sell them? I well, I, it, it's unclear at this point. Um, I because the kittens are so young, I believe they're they're breeding them. And you mentioned so people were meeting them in parking lots. Like you said, that's a big red flag. Were they advertising for these on, on websites or, or places like Craigslist? Yes, yes. They were advertising them on Kijiji and Craigslist. Um, some of the kittens, uh, again, presented with a foul odor. Their coats were matted and dirty. And again, people believe that they're rescuing them when this this industry, this breeding industry is not regulated. So anybody can go out there and uh, breed animals for profit and, and they're not being held accountable. And hopefully once this investigation is complete, we will be recommending charges. And these cats as well, can you talk, I know you, you mentioned that they were sick and in many cases you, you could tell that they, they weren't okay, but these, these weren't cheap either. The, the range of prices, it seemed like they were quite expensive. They were expensive. And we know that during COVID, uh, people, backyard breeders, were breeding their dogs and their cats and selling them for thousands of dollars. Now, since the beginning of the year, our community animal shelters have seen an increase in the numbers of kittens and, and puppies coming into our care because the demand has dropped. People are returning to their work and um, these breeders uh, have got no choice but to to surrender them to us and and we're taking them on this particular case this isn't this isn't the norm shall we say um, we haven't had many complaints of individuals uh, selling kittens or or puppies from the back of their vehicle or or meeting people in parking lots this is not the norm so I'm, I'm surprised that people continue to pay all this money um, for, for kittens, which there's no guarantee that they're purebred. Right. And uh, and like you said, the, again, the red flags of out of a vehicle or in a parking lot. How long, I, I've seen it says the past several months, but do you have an idea on how long this has been, uh, this has been going on with these particular individuals? Well, the first complaint we received was in January of 2022. And we've received 11 complaints since. And these are complaints of sick kittens. Who knows how many other kittens they've sold and um, and uh, we haven't received a complaint about them. 
but there's that, right. that's not an offense. That's not illegal. People can breed animals, unfortunately. Right. And and what do you think then, other than the, maybe you kind of, it pulls at the heartstrings, you see this animal that maybe isn't doing so well, and like you said, you, you feel like you're rescuing it, but, but it doesn't seem like there's a, a shortage of cats or kittens to go through reputable groups or, or through the SBCAs. How do you kind of get the message out there that if you do want to adopt a cat or a kitten, here's how you should do it? By, by, by reaching out to people like you who can spread the word. You're helping us spread the word. And even though these individuals um, are under investigation, uh, this may not stop them. And this is why we're, we're warning people in the Surrey-Langley area, uh, actually anywhere in the, in the Lower Mainland, please beware of who you're buying from and, um, and be very, very careful. There are many adoption options, as you said, the BCSPCA or reputable rescues or or uh, reputable breeders. Mm-hmm. And uh, to go back to the um, the conditions of these cats, I mean, it's it's very sad, and I understand you touched on this, that even some of the kittens, though, in the reports that you've been getting from people is that people have paid this money and adopted these cats thinking they're saving them, and they haven't survived. No, they haven't. No, uh, we don't know how many have died, actually, but a few have died. And yes, and they're out of pocket. And and unfortunately, um, these animals have suffered. It's it's just absolutely horrible. And to think that we continue to exploit animals is heartbreaking. Uh, do you think there's a reluctance as well, even if people are hearing this and maybe they did purchase one of these cats and, and are reluctant to come forward and to admit so maybe that they that they did that, but would you like people to let you know if, if perhaps this is bigger and there have been many more uh, of these cats sold? Absolutely. If anybody... If anybody has information out there, please contact our animal helpline. Um, that's uh, you'll find the number on our website, and that would in, that would help us uh, tremendously. And that's even if, say, this just sounds familiar and it was kind of very similar to what you described. Even if the cats that these that they've purchased are okay. Yes, please come forward. All right, Eileen, thanks for doing this. Uh, not to, It's sad to, to see what's happened to, to these animals and that this is continuing. But thank you so much for joining us and for talking more about this. I appreciate the opportunity, Jill. Thank you. Earlier today, we heard from the Federal Transport Minister about new funding that is meant to help clear the backlog of passenger complaints. The Transport Minister says Ottawa is increasing the CTA's base funding by 70% and will also look to give it stronger powers when it comes to processing complaints. So it's the combination of improving Uh, The efficiency of the process plus additional resources will mean significant improvement to the processing time. Omar Al-Gabra says the government is increasing the agency's budget by nearly 76 million over three years, which will add to the number of staff dedicated to the more than 42,000 complaints. That report from Global News. So will this work? Gabor Lukacs joins us now, the founder of airpassengerrights.ca. Thank you so much for being here. Good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. What are your thoughts on this new funding that's going to go into trying to clear that backlog of passenger complaints? I'm concerned it is throwing good money after the bad money. 
Canadian Transportation Agency has been part of the problem, not part of the solution in the past uh, several years. They are not impartial, not independent, and uh, they have not been enforcing the law as written. Having more people to do the same is not the solution. In my opinion, uh, the government should be revamping both the passenger protection regime and not just the APPR, but the Canada Transportation Act's underlying provisions and also the organization itself. The Canadian Transportation Agency has been wearing too many hats and they have been trying to have too many functions in a single organization and that also creates an inherent conflict. Uh, they should have a separate body which deals with making regulations and legislative type of function that should probably go to Transport Canada. Uh, quite possibly an economic regulation could go there. Then they should have a separate quasi-judicial function which deals with adjudicating complaints and another body which deals with enforcement. In that story as well, we didn't hear it there, but it goes on to say one of the numbers is that currently it can take up to 18 months for a complaint to be dealt with and to try and find some kind of resolution. Uh, that does seem like a, an incredibly long period of time. Would that be helpful, do you think, if that time was shortened? It is unreasonably long. But the question that the minister does not properly answer is why it is so long. And the reason is not simply lack of staff. Of course, having more staff could help a little bit. But the real root cause is that the regime, the passenger protection regulations and the underlying regime is so disproportionately complicated that deciding a single case whether compensation is owed or not takes many uh, hours and thousands of hundreds of pages um, a thousand page of documentation uh, just for $400, and that's not efficient. So just by throwing more money at an inefficient system is not going to become something more efficient. It is the system, the regime itself, that has to be harmonized with the European Union's gold standard, which is not simply passenger-friendly, but it is efficient. It is, it is friendly in the sense that it's easy to determine whether compensation is owed or not. And sorry, Gabor, your your phone was breaking up there a little bit, but but I think that the gist of that was throwing more money at this again. You can't just shorten the process, but it can't be so labor intensive. Like you said, that if, if you're looking for $400 compensation or even $500 compensation, that should not be a, a very, a, an extremely complicated and time consuming process. That's right. And it's not simply from the passenger's perspective, but from the decision maker's perspective. You see, if, even if they triple or quadruple the number of analysts working on the CTA, they're just going to speed up the processing, say, by five, by, by factor of four um, or three or whichever number multiplier they use. But if they were actually to revamp the regulations and the framework, then they could speed up the process by factors of, you know, eight, 16 or 32, um, depending on how more efficient it is going to become by simplifying the verification process for eligibility. But right now, we, 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 it sounds like we have a sinking boat that instead of dealing with the breach, they are just sending all the, all the sailors to be at the pumps, and that's not going to work. You first have to seal the breach to make sure that the water does not keep rising in your boat and then pump out the water. So first they should deal with, with the root cause of why we have such a backlog, and that is the structural flaws in the framework and the regulations and then allocate the resources to take care of the backlog.
Is there a backlog as well? Is it related to the the pandemic when things, everything kind of went sideways? Or is it also that we're seeing people that are filing complaints because there's there's not the pressure on airlines to follow these rules and to, to make it an experience so people aren't going to be filing complaints? Certainly, the airline's behavior plays a major role in the, in the number of soaring complaints. There's no question. So does the lack of enforcement. The Canadian Transportation Agency has not been enforcing passenger rights for the longest time. So the airlines feel that they are invincible, they are immune to any real consequence, and therefore they engage in shabby conduct. But ultimately, even if the CTA suddenly saw the light and began to enforce passenger rights as written today, their rules themselves are so complicated that it takes a disproportionate amount of time for a decision maker to decide whether compensation is owed or not in a given situation. The last few weeks or months, we have seen a little bit of uptick in in, um, fines being issued to airlines, but without exception, they have been low-hanging fruit. Uh, Cases where it's very easy to verify that the airline uh, breached the law. And part of the problem is that the regulations are written in such a complicated manner that it is not easy to determine whether a passenger is owed compensation. That's the root cause of the problem. While in the European Union, you need three things, uh, scheduled arrival time, actual arrival time, and whether there is, was any event which is publicly known, like a major snowstorm or act of terrorism, which would relieve the airline from responsibility. But it has to be something very, very, very big and quite likely well-known. So if you have those three bits of information in Europe, you can determine whether a passenger has to get compensation. That's what Canada would need. Because then deciding the fate of one claim would take, say, less than 15 minutes. It would mean that, that uh, a single person would be able to, to deal with 32 complaints per day. So when you do the math, the whole backlog could be finished up in a very short amount of time. And would something like that, to, to put it to, to use or to, to suggest, if that was in place, uh, given what we've seen even in this past week with passengers uh, of Flair Airlines that found themselves in Arizona in, in several cases without a flight home, is that something uh, a lot of them still are very frustrated saying that they didn't get the hotel voucher or the meal voucher and they're, they're still looking for answers? Is that something, do you think, that could then be better dealt with if it was a system more like the European system? If it were more like a European system, then we would very soon not have a backlog to begin with. And then we have anomalies, like an airline failing to provide vouchers or failing to provide flare um, passengers also are owed lump sum compensation, $500 per passenger. Let's remind everybody about that. But if the airline is not, is not paying that compensation, then they would have the resources necessary to crack down on anomalies. When you have one airline or one group of flights, or a few flights, where, where there, is a, there is a violation, then you can put resources to do that. If all airlines are breaking the law all across the country, and it becomes very challenging for even the most cooperative and consumer-friendly regulator to enforce the law, and that's where the problem is. And so with this then, so I'm getting the impression that even with this money, which is a significant amount of money with almost $76 million in funding for this, uh, really not hitting the mark if we're not going to revamp the CTA or revamp the whole system of dealing with complaints? That's right. The, the root cause of why we are here is that, that the Canada's passenger protection regime is substantially inferior than the European Union's gold standard. And until such time as we are going to synchronize with that and have a similarly simple and straightforward regime, 
the problem is going to reproduce itself. We can have uh, another 200 or 400 or one other thousand uh, people working in the CTA, but the problem is not going to go away because the causes of the problem are not going to go away. We need to deal with the causes. We need to ensure that airlines find it less profitable to disobey the law than to obey the law. And we need to make sure that that determining whether there was or wasn't a violation becomes very, very simple so that it will be realistically enforceable on a large scale. All right, Gabor, we will leave it there today. Thank you so much, as always, for joining us to talk about complaints and airlines and the rights of passengers. Thank you very much for having me.